arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. Toaster and my TV and my steel belted radios, and I won't say anything. Just leave us alone. Well, I'm not going to leave you alone. I want you to get mad. I don't want you to protest. I don't want you to write. I don't want you to write to your congressman because I wouldn't know what to tell you to write. I don't know what to do about the depression and the inflation and the Russians and the crime in the street. All I know is that first, you've got to get mad. You've got to say, I'm a human being. God damn it. My life has value. Oh, I want you to get up now. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. In my first story, Todd Granger, I'm sure is as mad as hell as Howard Beale was in the 1976 film Network. Mr. Granger is a disgruntled motivation speaker who can't deal with the demands of the modern world. As we will see, other forces take over Mr. Granger's life. He's torn between two worlds, and in the end, he's absorbed by one of those worlds. An aging World War II vet is heckled and shoved down by punks without a heart. For those who torment this old man, they will quickly understand that this man was not always old. He fought in a time and place beyond their comprehension until they joined him in battle. The story is called Sarge, and understanding is the order of the day. Nick Piranha is a man without a soul, a man who can sell anything and talk his way out of any predicament. His transgressions catch up with his faith, and he finds himself in a world where he cannot escape himself. Episode 5 of Compilation, Fitting on the Air, begins now. Crossroads by Robert P. Fitton. Lieutenant Wirtz flipped the sirens, and the flashing blue lights swung across the front yards and houses as he sped back to Brighton Falls. The cruiser air conditioner was not working again, so he rolled down the side window. Hey, Hank. Hank, Radio Sam. What I think we need to do is to surround this place in case this guy tries to hurt anyone else. Hank checked the bright computer screen letters as they raced toward town. Killed his girlfriend in Arizona. Slashed her throat. Why does he want a horse and wagon? Because he's psycho, that's why. Todd Granger held the podium, paused, and scanned the large auditorium. Hundreds had paid money to listen to his motivation speech, but as he neared the conclusion, he wondered why he was here at all. Forget our business world. Believe in whatever you do in your life. Without substance, a man has nothing. He runs adrift and is good to no one, even himself. Thank you and good afternoon. The crowd responded with a standing thunder as Todd waved and walked under his company's purple and white banner. He shook hands perfunctorily and staggered off the stage. His knees weakened and he thought he might collapse. You look like hell, Todd, said Bruce Williams. I feel like hell. Todd clutched the side curtain as the applause tapered off. I need time off. No more speeches. 
I just want to go home. I'm here against my will. Why am I doing this? You're losing it, Todd. There has to be another way. I tell you, I don't belong here. Todd, get a hold of yourself. This motivational speaking is a gold mine. Todd, breathing rapidly, scanned the Christmas decorations back in the lobby. The season for giving, and I'm talking about taking. Succeeding in the business world. You diverted from the usual script at the end. Maybe I was talking about myself. Maybe they need to know the truth. This is not where I'm supposed to be. He stood upright and turned toward the stage. What are you doing? Going back out there and tell those people what I really think. Don't do that. We'll never get another booking. Good. Todd emerged from behind the curtain. The people stood around the hall. Some had left through the back exits. Bruce pleaded with him as he pulled the microphone off the stand. Listen to me! Heads turned. We live in an information age where everything comes easily. I submit that we are inundated with useless information. Think about what really matters and not the dribble you are fed. They've made it easy. Easy to take in the inconsequential and the manifestations of the profit makers. Give me the simple life. Bruce walked across the stage and spoke away from the mic. Todd, Todd, they're listening to this. Distances have shriveled. The fast food places have ruined the locales. So have the mega chain stores. It's all homogenized now. Where is small town America? What happened to the old fashioned poignant love songs? Where is their commitment in a transient society? Where is the thought within the passiveness of the media? Bruce yanked his arm. A low buzz generated in the hall, and the people trickling out looked back inside. Congratulations, Todd. Word of this outburst will spread. In our zest for technological excellence, we have bred mediocrity. He held the microphone to his side and finally dropped it on the floor as he wept. Bruce took his arm and led him back on the stage. The curtains in the upper ropes above the stage spun and everything dissipated. He lay on his back, and now spread before him in the cold winter air was an undulating white hilly landscape with tiny branches against a pink-silver sky. He was on his way home. Renee, wrapped in her new soft mink, strutted into the hotel room. Todd, have you gone soft? I don't know, said Todd from the couch. Bruce told me how you lost it on stage. She mixed a drink and looped her bright black nails around the silver glass. Call a goddamn shrink, because I can't deal with you flipping out. A lady shouldn't use that language. <laughs> Whoever said she was a lady, asked Bruce. What? Come on, Todd. You got 16 cities on this tour and you're worried about a few expletives? Setting the drink on the side table, she removed a gold cigarette case. She pinched a long, filtered cigarette in her violet rouged lips and popped the lighter flame. In a half second, she'd inhaled and blew smoke back into the room. We have spent 10 years developing this motivational tour. Well, you're pretty unmotivating, Todd. Do I have to hold your hand up there? Please, Renee, leave me alone now. Oh, sure, she said, taking in more smoke. I'll leave you alone, but you better get your shit together, Todd. 
before we go to Chicago. She reached the outside door and then she turned. I think you've wimped out. She slammed the door and Todd stood. In two hours, he would be on the plane to Chicago. Her smoke lingered and the deep lipstick lined the gin glass. He moved to the window and pulled back the curtain rod. A thick barrage of snow swept the air, partially obscuring the city lights. He feared Rene would leave him. He raced to the closet and donned his leather jacket. Maybe he would catch her before the elevator reached the lobby. Once in the hall, he opened the stairwell door and raced down the concrete. At the lower door, he looked across the wood-paneled lobby. The elevator doors had just closed and the outline of Renee's dark mink vanished through the rotating door. He dodged three people entering the elevator and scampered through the busy lobby to the door. Within the swirling snow, Rene trudged across the road. He shuffled behind an old woman inside the revolving door. The cold air snipped his cheeks as he slid onto the sidewalk. Snowflakes and sheets whipped through the streetlights and partially hid Rene as she entered the park. Todd waited for a yellow cab to pass. He splashed the slush and called out her name. The icy snow stung his eyes as he bolted across the road and reached the far sidewalk. He shielded his arm against the onslaught but slipped on the park hill. A red light swung slowly in the darkened squall ahead near the granite statues at the top. Todd fought to maintain his balance down the cement walkway. An old man, his white beard reflected crimson, gazed through square-rimmed spectacles. Crossroads! Crossroads! A woman just walked down here, said Todd into the wind gust. No, I can't say I've seen anyone for quite some time. About time you were back. You've been caught in the middle, son. Her name is Renee. She's wearing a mink coat. You don't understand, Todd. How do you know my name? I have to get you back. I hope I can keep you back this time. He held the lantern upward. Sometimes you get caught in the middle. My job is to get you back if I can, and I think I finally can. Who are you? The longer we wait, the harder it becomes. The lantern reflected red circles in his glass spectacles. He moved past the old man and along a prodigious rock ledge. The lantern dimmed around the rocks, but when he turned, a bright mass moved toward him. As the light enveloped him, he lost sight of the park and the old man's lantern. He rubbed his hands in the cold air. A town was nestled in a dipping valley. Smoke rose gracefully from chimneys dotted across the snow-covered landscape. A railroad track and a parallel series of wire lines cut through the fields and along the houses and town buildings. Horses pulled carriages along unpaved, muddy roads. The rock ledge blocked the passage behind. Todd ran his fingertips along his bristly side whiskers and a thick handlebar mustache covered his upper lip. He removed his gloves as he trudged through the snow-covered path and buttoned his heavy coat. His breath fogged up in the cold morning air as he reached the shadows of a long snow-covered fence below. Amanda was probably wondering why he hadn't come home. The town buildings were coated with a layer of fresh snow and thick smoke was more evident closer to town. Men with wood-handled shovels scraped pathways along Main Street. Cold water from hanging icicles dripped onto his cheek as he stepped onto the cleared, wet boardwalk. 
Good morning, Todd, said a man about his age, bundled up and his breath vivid in the sunlight. Please tell Amanda that Harriet will be over to plan the Christmas meal. We won't be long. December's been cold, but quick. Harriet, how do I know she's my wife's sister? The man produced a wide grin on his stubble face. Ah, <laughs> Todd, you're, you're always poking fun. By the way, the train got delayed. I was hoping that toy shipment for the kids would be here at noon. Still might be. Kids can't make it through Christmas without a visit from St. Nicholas. I'll send someone to the rail yard over to your store. My store? <laughs> You've been taking a few swigs before breakfast? Pretending to hit Todd's shoulder as he smiled. No, Arthur, no. My brother-in-law. Get to the store, Todd. The farmers are going to need feed after the storm. You're right. I'll tell Amanda what you said, he said, hurrying back down the boardwalk. And let me know about those toys, Arthur. A few riders passed him, steam rising off their horses, glean coats. Todd went down the stairs. Next to the white clapboard church, a black-lettered sign was nailed to newly cut boards along the boardwalk porch. Granger's store. He was drawn to the wrought iron gate beyond the boardwalk. Bare oaks and maples spread over a shoveled inclined walkway to a yellow clapboard house with ornate green trim. Smoke rose from a tight brick chimney centered on the slate roof. He stared at the steam evaporating off the roof's snow. The iron gate squeaked when he pushed it open. Two small girls pressed their noses against the windowpane condensation and waved. The heavy green front door opened and they ran onto the wide porch. Papa! Todd moved quickly to greet them. It's cold out here, girls! At the door, Amanda, her brown hair braided to the shoulder, folded her arms across her blue sweater. Sarah and Hannah, it's freezing out there! Todd escorted them up the porch and Amanda put her arm around him as they all moved into the heated foyer. And how was your walk, Mr. Granger? My walk was... He looked into her dark eyes. Amanda, I feel like I've been away for so long. She had a wide smile. Eighty-eight minutes, and after your morning coffee and muffins, you'll have to open the store. The children rushed into the parlor and held her shoulders. I missed you. She moved her lips upward and tilted her head. You're in a reflective mood this morning. Must be the Christmas spirit. Todd looked past the garlands, decorating the foyer moldings into the parlor and down the hall into the wallpapered kitchen. I talked to Arthur that toy shipment might be stuck on the train from Chicago. Well, two days until Christmas, Hannah is convinced she's getting the China doll. She's already given it a name, Gretchen, and Sarah wants that sheet music. As she spoke, the parlor piano erupted into a sweet cavalcade of notes, merging into O Holy Night. Todd held Amanda's hand and they moved into the parlor. White candles were placed amidst mantle greens. Hannah's soothing voice accompanied the brisk rendition as Sarah's nimble fingers danced across the keys. The wax from the candles extinguished on the towering spruce near the white mantle lingered in the air. Bulky round logs blazed red behind the dark fireplace screen. Todd turned. I'm looking forward to Christmas dinner. It's a good life, Todd. A good life. Someone wrapped the heavy brass knocker. Amanda crossed into the foyer as Todd leaned against the wood frame. The cold air rushed in and he heard Arthur whisper, Todd, Todd, it's the train. Sarah continued on the piano as he moved into the foyer. Amanda closed the front door. 
The train can't get through the mountains. Oh, Todd, the presents. When will the tracks be cleared, Arthur? You don't understand. It's a wreck. With the snow, it won't be till after the holiday till they get that train to Brighton Falls. The children have presents on that train, said Todd, stroking his chin. Buy them something else, something from the store. No. He thought about the girls and their Christmas hopes as music filled the house. We'll go by wagon. With the roads the way they are? Come on, Todd. With moist eyes, Amanda stared into the parlor. Maybe we can explain. I don't want the girls to have memories of a Christmas without the things they hope for. Let's get the horses, Arthur. Come on, we'll follow the tracks. Todd leaned toward the sidelights and pulled back the ruffled curtains. But now he saw a long blue pool surrounded by concrete and rock mountains lurking behind a stockade fence. He heard Renee again. You're a pain in the ass, Todd. Ever since we pulled your drunken ass out of the park last night, we got you on the plane before word got out. Todd closed his eyes. Renee. No, I don't want to be back here. I have to get to the wagon. She sounded drunk. You don't even know. I had an affair, all right? What's the big deal? People play around? Todd continued staring at the rock ledges beyond the rippling pool water. I don't belong here. Then get out. You need to see a shrink anyway. You think we're going to be booking motivation seminars with some self-righteous guy pontificating? These people shelled out bucks to be motivated, not to be preached to. Todd gawked at her short leather skirt and sheer half-open blouse. A full glass of gin threatened to overflow. He said, I don't belong here. I don't know why I'm back here again. I don't know why you're here either. You used to be fun, Todd. She lifted the clear liquor to her smeared lips and poured the entire contents down her throat. There! While you were passed out, I had a man up here, Todd. That's how bright you are. Todd clenched his fists and grabbed her arms. What kind of a person are you? Let go of me. No. Get out. Get out of my sight. I don't want to see or hear from you again. He released her and she fell back on the carpet. She scrambled to the kitchen counter and pulled out a wide, glistening carving knife. Her heavy eyes and fanatic grin was accompanied by a slow, slurring dribble. I used you, Todd. Don't you see that? You like knives, Todd? Put down the knife, Renee. Her crazed eyes opened wide as she retraced her steps across the room. The sharp, narrow blade shook in her hands as Todd backed against the wall. I don't need you. Just put down the knife. Killing me won't... She pushed the blade toward him several times. Nervous? Where's your motivation now, Todd? You're going to kill me, is that it? Worse, I could just live with you. You're going to get your head together again and start making money for us. No. Going back to Brighton Falls. Oh, really? And where the hell is Brighton Falls? I don't belong here. I don't know why I'm here. Brighton Falls, it must be real. Renee swiped the knife through the air. Todd kicked her side when she thrust the knife forward again. Then he wrapped his hands around her hands as he pushed the blade toward his chest. He overcame the resistance and backhanded her face. When she swung the knife again, he whipped her wrist back like a stretched rubber band and sliced her neck. Blood squirted in his face and she fell to the rug. He held the knife over her fallen form. The doorbell rang and he headed for the window.
That guy picks the hottest night of the summer to hold up here, said Wurtz, looking at the spotlight shining on old man Granby's barn. He patted his handkerchief onto his forehead. The chief moved with the minister past the barricade. What do you think, Sam? What does he want? The chief puffed on his cigarette and chucked it aside. He has horses hitched to the wagon. That's all he wants. What do you think, Pastor? I think the man has lost touch with reality. He claims his girlfriend rushed him with the knife. Pastor, I wish I had a buck for every con man who said it wasn't his fault. Wurtz's eyes closed for a second and he looked at Hank. He turned toward the large crowd gathering behind the yellow plastic tape. Hey, we don't need an audience for this. I say let him ride out with the wagon, said the chief. Sam, that is a mistake, said Wirtz. The chief shook his head. I want you and Hank to head for the rear doors. Granger isn't armed. And do what, Sam? Let him out. Let him go. The horses will tire, then we bring him in. Wirtz nodded, but he didn't like it. He motioned for Hank to follow him past the corral fences. This is a dumb move. Maybe he's right, said Hank, as Roger Stebbins ran from behind the gate. Roger, get the hell out of here. I heard the pastor say he's not armed. Isn't it enough it's a hundred degrees out here? I have to have people who can't mind their own business? This is my business. The man inside. My maternal grandparents were named Granger. My great-great-grandfather was named Todd Granger. Wirtz stopped at the edge of the building. Then go have a reunion back at the jail cell. Roger, get back. Roger stepped back to the fence as Hank paralleled the barn toward the wooden door latches. Wirtz positioned himself on the far side as the two men lifted the thick plank out of the wooden bracket. They walked on either side and set the wood on the ground. Wirtz wiped his forehead and neck. He better not be armed, said Hank, drawing his gun. Wirtz already had his weapon pointed upward. With his fingers, he gripped the frame support. Cold air, like the inside of his cruiser when the air conditioner was working right, filtered out of the crack. The door was difficult to open. Come on, help me, Hank! Both men pulled back. Frost, flakes, and snow fell out of the darkened opening. The pressure eased and the doors exploded with the deafening howl of a prairie blizzard. Snow whipped around the barnyard and billowed above the roof. The steady click of horse hooves grew louder. Two mammoth brown workhorses appeared within a blast of snow and ice. Wurtz retreated with Hank to the fence. Atop the wagon, the hazy figures of two men in a pile of wrapped boxes behind the seat moved into the barnyard with the snow. Wurtz shielded his eyes against ice bits flying into his face. The storm formed a fuzzy glow as the horses and wagon passed through the rear corral without disturbing the fence boards. As the glow faded across the back field, a white-bearded man with a red lantern turned and faced them. He waved the lantern twice and then marched into the darkness. The light mass tightened into a small pinpoint and then faded with the lantern. Wirtz stepped forward and followed the moisture up to the fence. He shined his flashlight across the corral's wet trail and into the field. He turned when the chief appeared, back with Hank and Roger Stebbins. Where the hell is he? asked the chief. Wirtz stepped from the fence. I didn't see nothing, chief. Nothing at all. The Ultimate Salesman by Robert P. Fitton Bailey knew that Nick Piranha could have him fired. 
He stared out the control tower at the ferocious blizzard sweeping over the airport. Piranha had been pressuring him for the last 45 minutes, and now he had to answer another call. He picked up the red control tower phone. This is Bailey. Bailey, this is uh, Nick Piranha. I rented this bird, pal. I want it up in the air now. I have an experienced pilot. What's the matter? No balls? Bailey lit another cigarette and inhaled quickly. Piranha's boisterous voice inflamed an already tricky situation. Mr. Piranha, I can't put people at risk. You let me worry about that. Piranha had women on the plane. Bailey could hear them giggling as Piranha himself laughed like a disgruntled cow. <laughs> One more call, Bailey, and I can make your life miserable. Now be a man and make the decision. Bailey exhaled and flipped the radio switch. Captain, you have clearance on runway six. He could hear Piranha's voice on the plane. Case closed, problem solved. You don't get to first base with a broad or anywhere else in this life if you don't ask. Tell a guy he has no balls and you have meeting out of your hand. <laughs> Bailey shut off the radio and stayed at the jet in the snowy runway lights. I just hope you get what the hell you deserve. Piranha checked his perfectly styled black coif. His face had bulged out during the past year, but it was not time to worry about diets. He lifted the drink off the bathroom counter and stepped back into the specially equipped 767. All the seats were removed. The bar, with widescreen TVs and bolted furniture, had transformed the commercial airliner into a flying lounge with adjoining bedrooms. The red-haired Lorna crossed her long legs on the sofa and held up her drink. Come on, Nicky, let's party toward the millennium. Piranha spilled his drink as he moved toward her. Wow, you tell that pilot to fly this thing straight. <laughs> Piranha puckered his lips and bent over, but he felt his partner's strong grip on his wrist. Hey, Nick, you and I need to talk. Piranha looked up. Hey, can't you see I'm busy, Cliff? This can't wait. It's been too long as it is. Excuse me there, beautiful. Piranha put his arm around Cliff and walked him to the rear bedroom. He flipped on the lights as the plane bounced. Hey, Cliff, never interrupt me with a broad or a good meal. <laughs> Cliff's face remained sour, and he set his drink on the bureau. You've screwed me for the last time, Nick. Screwed you? What the hell are you talking about? You made a deal with Sun Sensor for all the software rights, and you just left me out of it. Just like you used to screw Orrin Kranz out of deals. Didn't you think I'd hear about it? Piranha grinned and raised his glass. I really didn't care if you knew. He downed the liquor and smiled again. You're all done, Cliff. I don't think so. Piranha recoiled when Cliff produced a small handgun and took a step toward him. Listen, you son of a bitch. You pulled a lot of shit since we've been together. I've lost money and I let it go. But now you're cutting me off. You're a dead man, Nick. We're 20,000 feet above the Atlantic. No one will ever find your body. Cliff, Cliff, you're overreacting. Piranha tried to move forward, but Cliff pushed the gun toward him. I'll include you. No, you won't. And now I'm going to watch you squirm, just like everyone who's gotten in your way. You're a guy that used to sell stereos and transistor radios 20 years ago, but you seem to have forgotten that. The plane hit another level of turbulence, and Cliff lost his footing. With the gun up in the air, he fell back against the wall panels. Piranha rumbled forward and grabbed his wrist. 
He knocked the gun from Cliff's grasp. Before Cliff could reach out, Piranha had the gun, and with a smirk, swung it toward Cliff's head. My past is my past, and you're not going to let me forget it, are you? Go ahead, kill me. Surprised you didn't get me out of the way years ago. Piranha chuckled as he spoke. You got your wish, old pal. He fired once, piercing Cliff's forehead, and his partner hit the wall. Piranha stood over the dead man's stare. He reached into the closet and pulled out one of his clothing bags. Carefully, he surrounded the body and stuffed Klimt's limp frame into the plastic and zipped the side. He was surprised at the minimal amount of blood on the wall panel. Cleanup would be quick and disposal easy. He found himself grinning as he hurried to the adjacent bathroom. The small blood globs on his hands were easily washed clean with faucet water. As he dried his hands on a paper towel and the plane pitched again, he fell forward against the counter. The lights went out and the door slammed. Damn this flight! Simple millennium party has to get screwed up! He twisted the slippery knob, but was at first unable to open the bathroom door. Getting Cliff's body out of the plane was critical. He pushed the open door with his shoulder and burst into a stockroom. Shelves were packed with electronic boxes along cinder block walls to the maroon girders above. Holy shit! Piranha spun back to the bathroom but saw his reflection in the dirty mirror of the Audiotronics bathroom from 20 years ago. He loosened his red polyester tie and gawked at his worn button-down shirt and corduroy pants. Hey Nick, I need a quad stereo. Piranha turned as an old man with a striped tie waddled into the back room. Check and see if another store has it in stock, will you? Elliot? What? This is bullshit. Come on, I got customers waiting out there. He moved through the swinging doors and Piranha followed him onto the sales floor. The store at the mall appeared as it had so long ago. Even Elliot in his baggy brown pants waited on customers with his usual whining pitch and aggravating voice. Elliot cleaned his glasses on his shirt and made a motion to the phone. Piranha walked along the counter past TV sets with a White House report of Ronald Reagan in the Rose Garden. He glanced back as he staggered into the mall. Elliot was on the phone and muttering something to the customers. Piranha watched the people move by with their shopping bags. Hey Nick, I can't keep doing everything myself in this store. You make me open the store, you make me close the store, you make me count the money, and then you take the commissions from me. Piranha turned and held his round shoulders. Elliot, you have to help me get out of here. You want to go home again? No, I want to be back on the plane. You do something wrong, Nick? No, I never apologize, I never explain. The fat wrinkles around Elliot's eyes deepened. He pursed his lips. You never learn, do you? With that attitude, you'll never leave here. The old man turned and went back to the customers in the store. Piranha crossed his arms and pulled out a pack of cigarettes. As he lit up, Orrin Kranz, carrying his black briefcase, walked briskly up the mall. Holding a cigarette, Piranha ran forward. Kranz stopped and he saw him approach. Hey, Kranz, how can you be here? Some reason I've been brought back here. Eh, hey, no kidding. Piranha walked alongside him toward the Audiotronic store. Then you know, you know I was on that plane. And you killed your partner. He was gonna kill me. It's always the same rationalization, isn't it, Nick? 
You put me in my grave after taking every penny I earned, taking over my stores, launch your so-called career. You don't understand, do you? Ugly rumors, ugly rumors. Piranha thought the store entrance had shrunk. To his right, a short man with thick glasses and a dumb-faced grin tiptoed over with a trash bag in his hand. Piranha had forgotten this man had ever existed. What the hell do you want, Dopey? I came in and empty your trash, Mr. P. Can't you see I'm busy? I know something you don't know. Shut up. Piranha moved up to him and glared down. Get lost, Dopey. Get the hell out of here. You better be nice to me. He looked at his watch. I said, beat it. Piranha shoved the man's chest and he fell back on the floor. His glasses spun on the tiles. You little moron. Dopey raised his wrist. See this watch? I didn't think you could tell time, said Piranha. You don't have much time, Mr. P. You're going to die if you don't understand. Piranha stepped into the mall and faced Kranz again. He's got a half brain. But he understands. What, this bullshit? Am I supposed to understand? I want to go back on the plane. Elliot helped Dopey to his feet and picked up his glasses. He whispered something in the shorter man's ear. Hey, he did nothing there, Nick. Shut up, Elliot. No, I won't shut up. You ended up firing me. Right when my bonus was due and you never gave me a good reference again either. My kid, my kid was in college. Need I go on? Not my damn problem, Elliot. Piranha rushed through the shrunken store aisles. He pushed through the swinging doors and looked over at the bathroom as he headed for the metal outside door. He turned the lock and stepped into the cold air. A 1981 Honda Civic was parked off the road and smashed firmly into an oak tree. You were drunk, said a small boy in a striped shirt walking along the highway. You were all over the road and you forced my dad into that tree because you were drunk. I don't know what the hell you're talking about, kid. Don't blame me for your old man's bad driving. You don't understand, do you? Why does everyone keep asking me? What is it I'm supposed to understand? Piranha grabbed the door behind him and raced back to the stockroom. He climbed over boxes falling off the shelves and stared at the store's narrowed walls. What the hell is going on here? This store keeps getting smaller. He smashed the stockroom doors with his fists. A crowd had gathered outside in the mall and applauded when he moved into the constricted store. Cliff moved through the crowd and stood at the store entrance. Hey, Cliff, you're alive. I always gave you more smarts, Nick. The store rumbled amidst a slow scraping and packages fell off the peg hooks. Boxes careened over the shelf's edge and Piranha ran toward his partner but hit an unseen barrier. Shaken, he turned back to the store. How can these walls be closing in? Do you understand? Help me, Cliff. Please help me. Cliff squinted and looked him over. Then he shook his head. You bastard, Cliff. You never could be relied on. Piranha froze as the sidewalls edged closer, plowing up the fallen merchandise. Dopey inspected the transparent entrance wall. You better hurry up, Mr. P. Shut up. With another crunch forward, boxes pushed against his ankles. He scrambled up to the invisible wall and pounded his fists onto a surface as hard as concrete. God, help me. Piranha's hand slid down the transparency. He tightened his brow as both walls moved inevitably toward him. Cliff had an arrogant, self-assured look on his face. Tell us, Nick. 
I know what the hell you want me to say. From the corner of his eye, Piranha saw the walls closing. The compacted walls bunched the boxes as he climbed over the mound. But I won't say it. Do you hear me, Cliff? The rest of you? Do you understand? Cliff faced the others. He's doomed. Maybe I am, said Piranha, the walls less than ten feet away on both sides. He crawled over the clutter. But you gotta realize something. The world isn't a great place where justice is just handed out routinely. People get screwed, Cliff, because they're not strong enough, not savvy enough, because they're too weak. You had your chance, Nick, said Cliff as he turned. Wait! Cliff looked back as Piranha outstretched his arms to both encroaching walls. His upper lip curled. Never apologize. Never explain. When Piranha touched the side walls, he was inside the jet's bathroom. He spun around and pushed open the door. The plastic bag with Cliff's body was gone. Outside the cabin door, music played loudly and the bass rocked the walls. He poked his head outside. The clock was less than a minute away until the millennium. Piranha was handed a drink and he blended into the group. He put his arms around some blonde woman he didn't know and she smothered her red rouge over his lips. The clock neared midnight as he pushed her away. He looked around for Cliff. Where the hell is Cliff? Noisemakers blasted and somebody turned up the music volume. Through the 10 second countdown toward the year 2000, Piranha raced toward the pilot's cabin. He opened the door as the new year began and the captain turned. Happy 2000, Mr. Piranha. Where's my partner? Pilot leaned over the seat and checked his clipboard. I'm afraid I don't see his name here. Bullshit, he took off from Denver with us. Piranha turned when the music stopped. He gently nudged the door and gazed across a deserted plain. Now what the hell is this? Where are they? He ran back to the first bedroom but found nothing. In the rear bedroom, he opened up the door and tripped over the makeshift plastic body bag. He unzipped the edge and Cliff's frozen face peered back at him. Quickly, he retreated to the front cabin. The pilot looked up from his array of glowing gauges and monitors. What's the matter? Where am I guest and why is that bag in there? It'll always be there, he said as he stood, and so will you. Piranha clenched his fists. You land this damn plane, damn it. I don't think that's possible. What are you telling me? Captain smiled as his body slowly faded. Never apologize. Never explain. Sarge by Robert P. Fitton Minnelli would never give up. He gripped the shopping cart's red plastic handle and steadied himself as he shuffled along the baking aisle's shiny green tiles. Hints of hazelnut and French vanilla coffee beans provided a welcome security. The overhead fluorescent tubes glare sometimes blotted out the packages and cans. He fished for his reading glasses and then balanced them on his nose. Joanna had written his list in shaky ink on the blue post-it note. He cringed when the two teenagers appeared again down the end near the meat counter. How could he be scared of punks with gold earrings and metal pierced through their noses? At 83, he was afraid of a lot of things. Oh God, have mercy according to your great mercy, he whispered. He nudged his shopping cart, only half filled with Joanna's request and took baby steps. The cockiness made him want to run them down. Fifty years ago, maybe even ten years ago, 
Smacking them around was not a problem, but now any demands on his heart were risky. Hey, old man, said the runt with the shot dyed blonde hair and glazed blue eyes. The sweat beaded on Manelli's brow. He pursued his lips as he cleared his throat. His voice was weaker and raspier in old age. Hey, why don't you guys beat it? Dude wants us to beat it, Jackie. Yeah, the old fart has balls. You clowns, you don't know nothing. You don't appreciate nothing. Listen to him, said the runt. Can't even speak English. Manelli raised his heavy lids. He thrust his bushy white brows up, growled, and scurried forward. But the stupid cart went faster than his weakened legs. As he grasped for the handle, he lost his footing and hit the cold floor hard. His chest tightened as the light tubes and ceiling panels swirled. He saw the punks laughing through the cart's metal-gridded sides. The geezer's down for the count, Z-Man, giggled the runt. One, two, three. Get up, you sack of crap yelled the other one. Bright sneakers swung in a blur through the air, but he couldn't move. His ribs erupted in pain. He had pain before, but not like this. Hey, you suck. Oh man, you suck, said the runt. He closed his eyes as his chest throbbed and he called out Joanna's name. Jackie could not stop laughing as he followed the Z-Man into the meat aisle. He whipped by rows of plastic-wrapped chicken and beef in styrofoam containers. He had a thrill in his stomach when he thought about outrunning the cops. Hey, we taught him a lesson. Yeah, well, screw him. Near the plastic milk cartons and egg trays, two guys in white shirts and thin black ties ran with a single blue uniform security officer. Cops. In the back of the meat room, the Z-Man cut through the green aluminum cases into the cooler area. Hey, where's the exit? The cold air reeked of rancid meat. What about the freezer? Forget the freezer. Jackie pointed to the bright red exit signs above the back door. We're out of here. He raced over the cement like a rock skipping across the water, and he extended his hands toward the emergency exit bar. An alarm siren whined when he bashed the bar. He shielded his eyes to the intense outside light. His skin tingled as if someone had spilled a fizzy Coke all over him. Why is he wearing a coat with a backpack? layers of clothing and a bike helmet. The air was even colder than the meat room. Several distant explosions and rapid repeating gunfire meant the security guard would kill him. Z-Man wore a green army coat with lots of buttons, olive pants, and laced with scuffed brown boots. A metal green combat helmet was strapped around his chin. Jackie dove to the dirt as thundering blasts disturbed the still air, and the ensuing bullets punctured the tree bark. Jackie held his helmet as the bullets now tore up the snow and the gravel. He had a queasiness in his gut that threatened to make him upchuck his Happy Meal. What the hell is this? How did we get here? Pebbles rained on his metal helmet and coat. Z-Man gripped his own helmet as the sun crept through the branches and spread with deepening morning shadows down the hill. He scanned the thin clouds, brushed across the light blue sky. Jackie whispered through his teeth and fanatically inhaled the frigid air. This is unreal. Another bullet smacked something to his left. Z-Man, we gotta get out of here. I don't see the door. Steam from the blood smoke fabric below Z-Man's pack evaporated like the fog from a quiescent country pond. Jackie repeatedly shook the Z-Man's shoulder. Then he turned him over. His eyes were huge chestnut marbles, 
and the deep, dark maroon blood oozed over his purple lips. No! No! More bullets cut up the soil. The guns were only a few hundred feet away. He cupped his palms over his ears and the machine guns fired. Attitat! 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 Somebody shouted from the tree grove below and truck engines started. Get your ass down here, tracks! Kraut machine gun nest in the woods! Jackie stared into the Z-man's translucent eyes. He unbuttoned the coat and listened for a heartbeat through the sweater and shirt. He turned as something whooshed through the air. A prodigious burst covered him with gravel and pine needles and sent him tumbling back. He was deposited on level ground and squeezed his fingers around the edge of his helmet. More bullets zippered across the forest floor. A forceful, growling bear voice cracked in the crisp air. Tracks! He held his stinging wrist and blood dried across his palm. One of the military vehicles approached. The same forceful voice ordered them to fire their three-inch guns and the ensuing cannon booms shook the forest. More attitat, attitat, attitat drowned out the soldiers' voices. This is hell! Shut up, Trax. A red-haired guy, wood-butt rifle strapped over his shoulder, sent foggy breath into the air. Sarge says we're moving out. Jackie's voice quivered as he moved up the slope. The Z-Man! He's dead! This is war, Kilroy. Either you get up or we'll leave you for the krauts. All I did was kick the old man. Big deal. What? My wrist. He turned over Jackie's hand. Just wash it out. It's a cut. The old man. Get your head on straight. Come on. A massive green tank with a white star painted on the back produced a tapering orange flash from its long gun. The three-inch guns were positioned on tapering tripods across the hill. One by one, they popped and explosions erupted along the opposite ridge. The flashes and noise hypnotized Jackie. His mouth was too dry to speak. He smacked his lips. Tracks. It's me, Owen. He pulled a container out from his coat. Black letters U.S. stamped on the cocky cloth. Take a swig. It's fresh from the stream. Jackie held the cloth and gulped the freezing water till Owen pulled the container away. Zim wouldn't want you to stay back here and die. Come on, let's get back. Zim? Zim. Owen forced him to crouch and pushed him forward under crowd fire. In the grove, dozens of heavy white-numbered armored tanks left a corrugated trail of crushed leaves and grit. Soldiers stuck their flattened tan leather helmets out of the turrets. A huge guy, Doc Bristles, prominent on his unshaven face, spotted him. He barked out an order to the soldier in the next tank, and then he jaunted toward Jackie. His intense, murky green eyes focused on Jackie. His helmet, a bullet hole in the metal, was stuffed over his dark hair and strapped under his chin whiskers. I sent you dummies back here for recon an hour ago. Where's Zimmerman? He's dead. What the hell am I doing here? I was in the supermarket. Sarge, he's shell-shocked. He'll get over it. Get him another rifle and start up with us. He faced Jackie. Private, carry on. I'm not supposed to be here. He gazed back toward the hill where Z-Man had fallen. You think I like it here? Get your ass in line or I'll blow your damn head off. Someone threw Jackie a rifle heavy enough to knock him off balance. He strapped it over his shoulder and tracked behind Sarge to the tanks. Sometimes bullets whizzed over his head. Only the tank guns stifled the smaller arms fire. A soldier, in a lighter coat, 
held out his rifle as he leaped over the rocks. Hey, another Kraut machine gun nest on that far hill there, Sarge. Sarge nodded and then cupped his hand to his mouth. Potts, the bazooka. A couple of soldiers stuffed something into a long tube and the mortar exploded. Sarge wrapped his tree-trunk hands around the rifle and shouted out more orders. The three-inch, come on! Then he rushed the tank and pointed left. Hold it! Get them bastards on the rocks! The tank gun panned left and cranked upward. Jackie hid behind an adjacent tank. He couldn't understand why Sarge and the other soldiers didn't run as the Germans hurled barrage after barrage across the woods. Somebody mumbled that the tank gun had been improved to 90 millimeters. Jackie covered his ears when it fired, and the tank recoiled like a bucking horse. More U.S. tanks responded down the range. The explosions on the hill were closer, but the machine gun fire faded. We got him, Sarge! Sarge nodded, and they started forward again. Everything moved like a massive beast. Jackie coughed from the heavy smoke as he positioned himself between Sarge and the tank. Where are we, Sarge? Sarge marched with his rifle almost vertical in the strap. Where are we? Before he could answer, a huge fireball spread debris and sent them all to the ground. Inside one of the tanks, fire scorched upward and a soldier with no helmet, his clothes a torrent of flames, clawed his way out. Sarge was already there with several other guys. Sarge hurled his coat onto the wailing man. Somebody grabbed a metal fire extinguisher and pumped it by hand, but it was too late. Bloody burnt skin down to the bones had destroyed the soldier's arms and legs. A gaping wound in his neck exposed more raw flesh. A loud pop cut through the other gunfire. Fifteen feet away, smoke from a teary soldier's pistol wafted into the cold air. Sarge and three other troops dragged the dead soldier from behind a tree. He, sh he shot him! Sarge grabbed a black phone from another tank and his loud voice boomed through the woods. Somebody got him a new jacket. He set down the phone and then motioned with his hand for everyone to move out. The next gun volley muffled Jackie's hyperventilating. His rifle pushed into his collarbone and the heavy pack straps dug into his neck. Owen again held out his canteen. Jackie pulled the chain attached to the black cap. He lifted the metal opening to his lips. The cold water soothed his parched throat. Over there, yelled Sarge. He pointed to a tree cluster stuck in a rounded rock formation within the hills. That's where they were. Soldiers assumed positions on one knee and quickly fired their bazookas. Too far, Sarge, said one guy. Gotta be 600 feet. Sarge had the three-inch guns moved and the next series of rounds hit the cluster. Jackie breathed more regularly. Another soldier, a cigarette stuffed in the corner of his mouth, moved with the tank column. What, did you skip Fort Hood tracks? My rifle, it's heavy. How'd you ever get into the tank killers? You can't even carry an M1. Jackie thought back a few minutes. He and Z-Man had just run out of the meat room door. He swallowed several times, but he said nothing as they continued. The soldier fingered his ribs. I always thought you were a sissy. Look, I don't know how I got here. Yeah, I heard you tell Sarge that. You're trying to go stateside, that's all. Then he laughed. <laughs> Maybe you can go pound a few rivets with Rosie. Hey, Johnson, shouted Sarge, appearing like a behemoth from behind the moving tank. His voice was louder and angrier. The kid just lost his buddy, so knock it off. You got that? Yeah, I got it, Sarge. 
Sarge squinted, and Jackie again looked at the hole in his green metal helmet. You all right, kid? Yeah. Good. Carry on. Jackie sat on lumpy rocks next to three soldiers who had just carried a box from something they called sea rations. They actually had moved the stinky beef from a sealed silver metal can and then heated soupy wheat cereal from a colorless paper box, bacon fried in a grungy black metal pan. The bacon reminded him of home, but he shook his head when they offered him breakfast. Sarge stood by one of the straight tall trees and scooped something out of a small can. He threw the can past the tank and waved Jackie over. Kid, over here! Sarge looked spiffy since he shaved. He must have been six or seven inches taller than Jackie, and maybe he carried 60 additional pounds. I know you and Zimmerman were up there, and Zimmerman got it. We had to leave him back there, but you gotta eat. Why? Why, he asked. Stop thinking about yourself. Think about them people back home. They're all counting on us. We don't make it, then they don't make it. Them Krauts, even the Japs. You don't think they'd be happy riding through any town USA in their jalopies? You think they'd give a rat's ass about us? This is World War II, isn't it? Sarge laughed, and Jackie saw his big white teeth for the first time. Everything about him was big. Hey, we're making progress. Just remember where we've been. Remember sneaking behind all them trees in the snow? We froze, kid. I heard reports we lost 20,000 men. Them guys ain't going back to play ball or even get married. I lost my own brother over Italy. Jackie's eyes watered as he turned from Sarge and skinned the tree-lined hill. And we're heading into Germany. I must be dead. You ain't dead yet, unless you keep wandering. Patton wants us all across the Rhine. You think Hitler gives a damn about the United States? Bullshit. You think he cares about DiMaggio's 56 games or Williams batting over 400? You want to lose all that, kid? I guess not. Good. Carry on, soldier. The tank treads turned again. Sarge picked up his rifle and Jackie gave the thumbs-up sign and then barked out orders to the tank commanders like a cowboy rounding up cattle. As the fighting resumed, Jackie drifted to the tank they called Jackson. It was a new tank, officially called the M36 Jackson, with a thicker armor and a 90mm gun in the turret instead of the 76mm. Sarge said he would stick with the Hellcat M18. That got him through Belgium. Later that morning, they knocked out half a camouflage tank with a sloping front. Owen said it was a German Panzer. They immediately shot two crowd prisoners, guys about his age, in blue uniforms, when they wouldn't divulge any information about bridges over the Rhine. Jackie's complaint about cramps in his left side from carrying that M1 rifle went unanswered. Maybe he should just keep his mouth shut. Somebody threw him a tiny wrapped tan paper box designated menu number two. He had no idea what they had stuffed in the cans, but he ate this time because he was hungry. Night fell with a coldness that kept him shivering as the column advanced. Occasionally, a 90 millimeter would clear the hillside positions ahead. The blast shook his ears every time they shot at the German emplacements. Why not let Hitler be? Germany invading the United States made no sense. He wished he was plugged into his iPod. These guys were fighting a war with no cell phones or computers. They had some stupid black phone radio in the tank that Sarge called a SCR-610. He jumped when a bullet pinged off the tank. He only heard the rifle when he was on the ground. 
Sarge rounded the tank as if he was strolling through the mall on a Saturday night. Jackie leaped up before Sarge saw him. More rising orange cloud plumes briefly lit the hills and silhouetted the trees. He watched Sarge bounding between the tanks and the three-inch guns along the slope. Jackie confused Hitler and Charlie Chaplin with his black dab mustache. Hitler killed Jews and the Z-Man was Jewish. The image of the Z-Man's streaming blood was like a repeating MPEG clip in his head. As his toes ached in the cold night, his index finger slid around the M1's trigger, and he panned the gun back toward the darkened hills. Sarge's gruff voice dominated the night. Okay, we're stopping here. Captain says we're stopping here. Let's get some shut-eye for a few hours. Jackie's breath clouded the air as the Jackson finally squeaked to a stop. He wiped his eyes with his glove. I need a volunteer, Sarge said loudly. Jackie pushed his lips together and just wanted to sleep. Nobody else said anything either. Kept looking at the hole in Sarge's helmet. Reynolds, come on. Stand guard out there. Three hours is all I want. My stomach, Sarge, my stomach. I'm sick, he said in an almost inaudible voice a distance away. Oh, jeez. Sarge's boots crunched in the dirt as he paced. What about you, Harris? Harris's weak voice was lost in the darkness. You made me do that three nights ago. Jackie wondered if Sarge would ask him. He thought about what Sarge said about Ted Williams and DiMaggio. Would Hitler take away baseball or occupy his hometown? Ah, you guys, you get your sleep. Maybe I'll just let the crowd snipers slip down the road. Sarge's boots, grinding against the gravel, faded as he mumbled. Jackie, eyes fixed and his chin tucked into his helmet strap, cleared his parched throat. He settled his butt in the dirt and slipped his gloves over his numb fingers. Then he held on to his M1 as he leaned against the Jackson's cold metal treads. Did Sarge expect him to go up there and face the Germans in the night? He visualized his new four-story brick school and imagined his friends walking down the clean corridors. No problems like this. In his mind, he crossed his town village's green, shuffled through the autumn leaves toward the gazebo. The rapper concert last fall upset the older people in town. Would he ever see his parents' long gray contempt of the tree-lined streets? He was so free there. The eastern skies occasionally flashed with explosions that obliterated the pinpoint stars above the woods. How could the Allies take out Germany? Then he thought about Sarge trudging up the road to one-man guard against the Germans. Jackie clutched the Jackson's tread and pulled himself up. He lifted his rifle. How he was transported to 1945 Europe didn't matter. He stepped away from the Jackson and over to the frozen ground. Sarge was positioned against one of the straight trees. He swung his rifle. Who goes there? Tracks. I'll be damned. Sarge smiled and hung the rifle over his shoulder. The hole in his helmet was visible even in the starlight. You keep looking at this. He removed the helmet, revealing a hefty crop of dark hair. His forehead was large and his brows dark. Put your finger in there where the bullet went. Jackie half smiled and inserted his finger through a smooth opening, but the inside was jagged. You are lucky. Yeah, I was lucky. Don't you even think about it? Why? You could have been killed. Jackie held the helmet as if he were gripping a celebrity steering wheel. Sarge shook his head. 
Let me tell you something about life. People, they tell you how they're going to plan things out. I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that, blah, blah, blah. All the college boys, they think they're so smart. He retrieved the helmet and strapped it to his head. It ain't like that. Life is chance. Nobody wants to believe it. So everything just happens? I didn't say that. Chance, a part of the big guy's plan. The big guy? Yeah, chance to us, but part of his plan. How can it be two things at once, Sarge? I don't know that. And I don't know about this helmet and every piece of lead that's been shot at my ass since we landed. Sarge pressed his index finger against Jackie's chest. Can't do anything about it, kid. Just keep on going. You carry on. Oh, God, have mercy, according to your great will. The leaves rustled to his right. A shadowy figure in a long coat raised a knife as he rushed Sarge. From his hip, Sarge pulled the trigger twice. A crowd gripped his stomach, staggered, and then collapsed. The knife hit the dirt. His curb-brim helmet rolled to the side. Sarge pulled Jackie behind the tree. A nasty bullet barrage sliced the bark and pierced the dirt. I knew they were out here, he shouted back to the convoy. Hit the hill! Hit the hill! Jackie gawked at the German, his mouth open and his eyes frozen to the sky. Sarge scooped the knife off the ground and motioned Jackie back. He tossed the knife to Jackie as they ran back to the tanks. Jackie caught the handle. Souvenir! Take it home! Now the tanks responded with the 75mm and then the Jackson's 90mm. Brighter bursts lit up the wooded hillside. The spent powder drifted along the ridge and into his nose. Somebody informed Sarge that another three men were dead. He nodded as if he were a retail clerk taking store inventory. Owen knelt down next to the Jackson and glanced up at him. They're talking about the 9th Armored building a bridge across the river. And I heard talk there's still a bridge standing. Sarge's eyes gained a new seriousness. Don't make no difference if we don't get across that river. Just like a ball game. Ball game? asked Jackie. Sarge is a pitcher, said Owen. Pitched against Tommy Bridges. Jackie smiled, but he did not know Tommy Bridges. You always get chances to win in a ball game. He pointed at them both. Same is true for the Krauts. More machine gun fire cascaded out of the night. Sarge, hunched over his rifle, climbed onto the tread and spoke to the soldier with the leather helmet. Jackie was still thinking about the German with the knife, but he was sure that Sarge didn't have the time to worry about that soldier. Jackie gnawed on the bacon strip. He liked the smell of bacon and eggs and coffee in the cool air. Above the escarpment, on the far shore, the river was icy gray and a chill in the air suggested the air was more like winter and not spring. Like huge insects in the sky, P-38s buzzed the German planes away from the arch bridge spanning the wide waterway ahead. He figured that bridge was at least two football fields long. Owen limped over to Jackie. His uniform was ripped on the leg with a trace of blood on the material. Hey, tracks! That bridge is still standing. Owen, you're wounded. I said that railroad bridge at Remagen is still standing. I see it. What luck! They say Eisenhower himself can't believe it. You don't question luck. Listen to this. 22 bridges over this river and one is standing. That ain't luck, my friend. All you need is one to cross the Rhine. March 7th, 1945. Remember that date. I will. 
He sliced the rest of the bacon bits with his incisors. Then he shuffled along the tank convoy. He was nervous about not seeing Sarge all morning. Maybe Sarge was getting new orders about what would happen if they got across that bridge. Sarge will read the dear lord before we cross that bridge. What's the dear lord? You know, there's a young man far from home called to serve his nation in a time of war. I don't know that. Sarge was seated in the passenger side of a jeep speeding away from the bridge. He spotted Jackie as the driver spun up the hill and skidded in the dirt. Then he exited the jeep before it stopped. They've been firing their 88s all night. The whole damn city here is burning. More P-38s swept across the skies above the river. Smoke rose from behind the hill. He glanced at the hole in Sarge's helmet. Sarge's jacket was unbuttoned. We crossing that bridge, Sarge? We're walking across the bridge, kid. Them are the orders. You ain't going. What? Jackie squinted, but his eyes were watery. Sarge, I have to go with you guys. He just shook his head and pressed his lips. The dear Lord, what is it, Sarge? Sarge rolled his tongue against his cheek. Then he unbuttoned his flap pocket and reached inside his army jacket. He pulled out a folded sheet of wrinkled paper. Do you pray, kid? Jackie shook his head. Well, start. A lieutenant called Sarge from the jeep. Sarge stared at the stained paper. He tucked it in his jacket and jogged back to the jeep. The engine revved and dirt spit off the tire treads. Jackie wanted to go into Germany with the rest of his unit. Where was Sarge? He was sure he could talk Sarge and letting him go into Germany. A mass of arch metal and girders crisscrossed the gray sky beyond the vertical wire supports. He merged with a column of United States troops, but tripped twice on the rails as he looked for Sarge. On either side of the shore, and soldiers atop the eroded cliff watched the penetration into Germany. Below the brick turret, Sarge, his rifle strapped over his shoulder, rushed across the bridge rails and disappeared into the left tower. He passed just inside one of the arch windows. Sarge! Jackie darted between the troops. Sarge! Somebody shouted from behind. They wanted the men to proceed slowly over the bridge. Jackie jettisoned his pack and rifle. He raced around the bricks and into the tower. Once inside, his voice echoed as if he were in a concert hall. Sarge! Sarge! Through the openings, the river moved ever steadily, but when he turned, the door was closed. Tears moved down his cheeks as he choked on his words. Where are you, Sarge? He twisted the door handle and then kicked the wood. Then he retreated to the open window. Planes returned above the river as the door slowly opened. Ave Maria, he whispered. Jackie's teary eyes were wide as he wandered into the hallway. The door closed behind him. He stood in a church choir loft, five rows back from three silver-haired women in sundresses. He was in shorts and his t-shirt again as the summer heat roasted the church. To his left were two powder blue stained glass windows cut with thick diagonal pieces and a brighter pink identical window in the center. Smooth glass lights hung down from the supports along both walls. Numerous stained glass windows with the names of the saints lined the smooth plaster within the outside walls. The white cloth shrouded altar and surrounding gold rug were set within an alcove up front. A larger wood altar formed the rounded rear wall with three sets of stained glass windows. Above, the gold letters in the upper wood border were simple words. O oh God, have mercy according to your great mercy. 
A flag-draped coffin was positioned center in the front of the altar. A gray-haired man unfolded a piece of paper and spoke into the microphone. We know how many times Mario said this prayer during the Second World War while in combat, and as a civilian here in this very church. Dear Lord, there is a man far from home called to serve his nation in time of war, sent to defend our freedom on some distant foreign shore. We pray you keep him safe. We pray you keep him strong. We pray you send him safely home, for he's been gone away so long. There is a young woman far from home, serving her nation with pride. Her step is strong, her step is sure. There is courage in every stride. We pray you keep her safe. We pray you keep her strong. We pray you send her safely home, for she's been away too long. Bless those who await their safe return. Bless those who mourn the loss. Bless those who serve this country well, no matter what the cost. To all he met, he was an inspiration. To his family, he was simply Uncle Mario. But to his men, he was just plain Sarge. And now let us hear, be not afraid, as we lay Mario Manelli to his final rest. The piano and flute produced a poignant recessional as the men in dark suits and honorary pallbearers followed the coffin down the main aisle. Two uniformed police officers stepped into the oak-framed doorway across from the loft. They drew handguns as he backed toward the hallway. To his right, he heard a raspy voice. Hey, why are you out here? In the corridor, with his rifle strapped to his green army-issued coat, Sarge gave him the thumbs up. Thought I told you to stay put. Sarge. The music stopped. Sarge's bare paws yanked him into the corridor. He regained his footing as Sarge steered him through the opening to the bridge tower. The river wound through the late winter countryside and the thundering troops crossed the Ludendorff Bridge. Sarge had just saved his life back in the loft, but Jackie didn't mention it. Sarge half nodded and watched the men marching into Germany. What do you say, kid? Got a job to do, don't we, Sarge? He slapped his shoulder as they crossed the rails and started onto the bridge. Sarge stopped before they merged with the other troops. Let's move out. Carry on. I knew the character that I created, Nick Piranha. There are Nick Piranhas pushing their way forward and taking whatever they desire every minute of the day. Would that the real Nick Piranha could experience what the story character encounters. I wrote Crossroads in a period where I just wanted to write stories. It was not possible, but it was possible to write a story. Enough said. I grew up with World War II vets all around and heard their war stories even as I grew older. I wanted to contrast those wise asses who never put their lives on the line for freedom, yet were hell-bent on torturing an aging hero. It wasn't so much the intrinsic nature of those punks that made them what they were. In the end, like the greatest generation, they came around. Next week's novella I have to classify as political, although I never intended it that way when I wrote it. It's called The Village, and I will tell you after you listen exactly what I meant by that designation. I'm Robert P. Fitton, heading into the hinterland, and if I'm permitted, we'll enter the village. Good evening.
All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fitinbooks.com or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz-pizzazz.com.